You're listening to Station F, the podcast. From the world's largest startup campus in Paris. This is Station F, the podcast, and I'm your host, Roxanne Varza. This is our last episode of 2020, and we wanted to go out with a bang, so it's on the future of food. We have some very, very exciting guests this week. Don Luining, who is CTO of Meatable, a company working on lab-grown meat. Ying Xiao, who is CEO of Plantic Biosciences, a Station F company who came out of the EF program and was recently nominated to the Future 40. They are actually working on new cultivation methods for plants. And we also have Antoine Hubert, CEO of Insect, a French company that's starting to be very well known for all the funding they've raised, but also because they are developing insects for animal feed. All right, Ying and Don, it's great to have both of you with us. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Wonderful. Well, Ying, I want to start out with you um, because you are doing something very, very interesting in the cannabis space. But I'm actually wondering, what does cannabis have to do with the future of food? Yeah, that is a very good question, Roxanne. Um, so when we talk about cannabis, we're talking about the family plants. And under the family plant cannabis, um, we have hemp and we have the other cousin that everybody uh, is sensitive about, uh, marijuana. Um, so the thing is, we really work um, on the hemp plant and the hemp plant itself has been a major crop for mankind for thousands of years. We always used it as a great um, source of food, fiber and medicine. Um, it is only in the last century that we put everything in the same bucket and um, hemp's um, cultivation has also been limited. Um, so the thing is, um, now people are, tr are starting to rediscover um, this plant and we realize that hemp seeds are one of the most nutritious in nature that we can find in terms of oil content and protein content. And um, it is cheaper to grow compared to a lot of the other um, crops. For example, chickpeas are quite in trend now as an alternative plant uh, protein, but hemp actually has 1.5 times more protein uh, compared to chickpeas and many other minerals and vitamins in its seeds. So I think hemp really has a role to play in the future of food, especially as a non-traditional protein source. Clearly, but tell me, what exactly are you guys doing with the cannabis plants? Yeah, so um, I have to make it clear that we don't see ourselves as a cannabis company. We are a new breeding company. So what we are doing is that we are building next generation plant breeding technologies to accelerate um, plant breeding considerably. Um, we chose uh, the cannabis sativa plant as a starting plant because um, it has been ignored for almost a century. So we have a very limited pool of choice in terms of good varieties today. And different markets are opening up to look at this plant um, as sustainable food source, but also therapeutic values, uh, which means we will have to develop more specialty varieties much quicker. Um, that's why we picked it as a head start, a beach head plant. But the main goal is really to utilize um, the new technologies that we're building to bring it also to other crops um, in future. Perfect. And Don, you guys are in, I mean, in the lab grown meat space. It's essentially in the center of the food revolution. Tell us exactly what you do and how is what you are doing different from other actors on the market? Yes, yeah, so Thank you for the question. So at Meatable, we are creating a new, innovative way of producing real meat, but without the need for animals to be slaughtered ever again. So what we want to do is we want to satisfy the world's appetite for meat without harm to people, animals, or the planet. So we're, we're working on a new way uh, using the stem cells of animals. So this is the funding building block of life taken from an unharmed pig or cow. And what we do then is we replicate the natural process that will make the cells grow into muscle and fat tissue that, that can be later be eaten, uh, just as normal meat would be eaten uh, in any other dish uh, that you will buy or product that you'll buy from the groceries. So tell me, what does that in the lab, what does that, I mean, I just imagine meat growing like a plant. Is that, is that what it's like? <laughs> <laughs> so 
It, you're you're close, but not not not, <laughs> not exactly. Completely. So, so what we do is when you take out a cell from an animal, you're providing it with all the warmth, all the air, all the nutrients that a normal animal would require. Only now in ready-to-eat chunks for the cells to consume. And then when you do this, when you're giving them this perfect surroundings where they feel extremely happy, they will start to divide. They will become more cells. And this is happening in what you can maybe imagine like a, a more like a brewery. So yeast does the same thing. You're keeping it in a warm environment and you're feeding it sugars and uh, amino acids and other good stuff that the cells need and then they'll start to grow. And in our case, we want them just to replicate enough to then finally turn into muscle and fat tissue. So these are basically huge cattles and then afterwards we can turn them in these cattles into muscle and fat. Super. And tell me, because there, when we talk about meat alternatives. I mean, the market is huge. There's so many different ways to approach this. So how is this really different from the other opportunity, the other options that we have out there? So for first off, this is actual meat, right? It is the, literally the same stuff that you would get from an animal. So I have a lot of people asking me if it's vegetarian, and it really depends on how you look at it. If you're a vegetarian because you think it's uh, bad for the environment or bad for animals, then yeah, I would say our alternative is vegetarian. But if you just don't want to eat animal protein, then I can quest- I put a question mark there if you were, would, might consider this vegetarian. But I think really what we're trying to aim for is creating a product that is indistinguishable from the real thing to have more options for people that now are stuck in a situation where they are looking for an alternative for their meat consumption because they you know, a lot of people enjoy eating meat we still see a lot of consumption of meat around the world but only now you have the choice of going either into a plant-based alternative made uh, usually from soy or chickpeas uh, or you have the real meat option but now we want to provide another alternative source uh, for meat but then without the negative consequences for the for the planet and uh, and the animals. Super. And what's interesting is both of your companies are essentially uh, innovating new ways to produce food. Um, And so why is it important for us to produce food differently and specifically what each of you is working on? Ying, I want to start with you because you kind of touched on this earlier. Sure. Um, So I think one fact that everybody should just know is that at the current rate that we are producing food, um, by 2050, we will have more people that starve um, than today because we are merely producing half of the amount that we need um, by that time. So to solve that problem, you either need to, well, have more land and grow more crops, or you have to increase the yield per hectare of uh, those crops. Um, I think we can all agree that we do not have so much land. We cannot take out cities now to to grow more crops. So our real option is really to innovate in the technologies to make crops better, more nutritious and resist the stress um, that we are giving it from climate change, for example. Um, So for us, it is fundamentally one of the most crucial topics of the 21st century. I always say that for people who live, especially in the developed world, we feel like there's just abundance of food. Um, But that is just not true. If we look at problems from the global level, we really need to start innovating in plant breeding to help solving part of the problem. Yeah, I have to agree. I'm definitely one of those people that thought we had an abundance of food. Clearly, we don't. Um, Don, tell me, why is it important for us to produce meat differently? So the way that we're producing right now is even worse than the way that we're producing crops. Since you'll have to feed 25 kilograms of crops to an animal to convert it into protein. And this takes about 15,000 liters of water to to grow one kilogram of beef. Uh, And then again, the animal itself produces a lot of manure, uh, produces a lot of methane because they're ruminants, so they, uh, they produce methane this way. So if you combine all the greenhouse gas emissions from the agricultural sector, it is bigger than the entire uh, transportation industry combined. It's around 14 to 15%. And this is just massive. And now that you see uh, in developing countries, the demand of meat growing exponentially, since now these people are coming to a welfare level that they can finally afford to diversify their uh, diet. And this is really the first thing that people do when they're gaining a little bit more wealth. They diversify their diet to include animal proteins, which are extremely damaging to the environment. Uh, So we have been trying to create an alternative that is not as damaging when they are starting to eat animal protein. Uh, so really, the, the 
the cause of climate change, the cause of animal diseases, uh, antibiotic resistance all comes from partly from animal rearing. And we have to do something with the amount of people coming to this planet to, to prevent it from becoming a bigger climate catastrophe than we're heading for right now. So very, very interesting. So behind both of your companies is really a climate issue, um, which I think is interesting, especially for, for Don, what you're doing, because I think a lot of people would think first about the animal and probably a lot less about the climate. <laughs> um, but it's very clear from what you just said that there's a huge impact. I'm also wondering, for, for people who maybe are less familiar with your companies, each of you, um, could you give us some background on what stage you guys are at? Uh, are you still in the research and development phase? Is there something on the market today? Um, so, Don, I'm actually going to start with you. Fantastic. So we, we are still in the developmental stage. So we're now moving from the R to the D. So going into a scale-up system where we are be able to produce enough products then to actually go to market within the coming years. Uh, and this is not easy, right? We're doing something pretty novel and producing meat in this way is, is really, at, especially at this scale, has never been done before. So we're really pioneering in that sense. But we are getting closer and closer to market entry. And I think, uh, I think last week we saw the first cultured meat product Product entered the market. It was in Singapore by a, a company called Just, where they represented the first chicken nuggets that were legally allowed to be sold on the Singaporean market. And I think this is just a fantastic milestone for the field in general, where third, in 2013, uh, I was part of the team that made the very first uh, lab-grown hamburger. And now we're seeing this becoming reality where people can actually access this new, new way of eating. And the next step, of course, is, is making this available to everybody in this world. Super. And when, when should we expect to see meetable products on the market? I think by 2023, uh, you will see the, the first volumes entering the market. But before we reach actually commercial scale, you're looking at 2025, which I think okay. is not necessarily bad when you take into account that you have to build a factory to produce this. Since everybody sometimes refer to this as lab-grown meat, but actually we are like to call it cultivated meat. And eventually we'll be moving away from this lab environment into just whatever a food producing factory would look like. So I really think this is a perspective uh, that we want to want to uh, give people that most foods come, start in the lab, but eventually are just uh, coming from the factory like every other regular food. Super. And Ying, tell us what what stage are you guys at, and also what does the actual product itself look like? Yeah. So we are also a pretty young company, um, maybe even younger than Dan and Meatball. So we started a company last year inside the program Entrepreneur First, and from there we spend most of our efforts also in the R and D phase. We have a research product going on with the university, and we expect that in a few months we would have our first batch of plants coming out of there. So super exciting. Um, but when we are talking about the full R and D, comprising all the techniques that we need to also develop and perfect. Um, it also takes a long time. We are at the moment also looking at somewhere around 2023 with the proper funding that we would create our first full variety ready to be commercialized. Super. So we have a similar timeline for both of you, which is quite intriguing. Um, now I want to come to something that I think probably you have definitely thought about and discussed and been confronted with a lot, consumer attitudes. And I feel like while uh, both of you are going to have obviously a positive impact on the environment, and that's kind of the premise behind what you're doing and why we need to do things differently, I am wondering if the consumer attitudes are not very controversial. Uh, Ying, I want to start with you. What's been kind of the reaction to what you're doing? I think for us, definitely there are two things um, for this topic. The first one, well, is the beachhead um, plant, which is cannabis, and people can have very mixed feelings about it. I have had this anecdote that I was having a, a meeting on my phone in a train station in Paris. I got off the train and I was having a typical kind of pitch. And when I finished my call, I was in a cafe. Somebody next to me, a, a French um, middle-aged uh, person, uh, he was really telling me that I heard that, you know, you're working on cannabis and I really think that this is very risky what you're trying to do. And I think this kind of feeling really um, grows because um, we are working on a historically um, controversial plant. Um, but I 
do think this plant has so much value that um, a lot of people have forgotten about. And it's just a pity that we are underutilizing, um, you know, what nature gives us as, as a perfect resource for many, many things. So it's part of our mission also to de-demonize the plants. And I do think that given time and the proper market education, people will start to realize that, you know, it's never the fault of a plant per se. It's really about how we humans, we, we use the plant. And then the second thing is the technology itself. Uh, we have a strong component of gene editing in our technology. So the feeling there is uh, sometimes also mixed because it's uh, a very new technique. The good thing is, well, uh, we do have this year's Nobel Prize for Chemistry given to two of the inventors of a CRISPR-Cas system. Um, but even before that, people kind of mix what is a GMO product, what is gene-edited products. Um, I think the population uh, is still wondering what are the notions there. And there's a lot of education to do as well to let people know that this is a key innovation and technology we will need to solve a lot of the problems, not just with plants, um, also with people, with diseases. Um, again, it's never the fault of a technology per se. We have to create the good frameworks to work around those technologies so that they really do good for people. But it is really not a reason to just cast aside a, a technology in fear of non-understanding or lack of understanding. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And I think you said it very well. It's not the fault of the technology. <laughs> um, Don, I want to hear from you because I'm imagining also there are mixed consumer attitudes and feelings with regards to, I'm going to adopt your, your word and say uh, cultured, is it cultured meat? Yes. Uh, so if, if you would ask me this question seven years ago, I would have a vastly different answer than I would have today. In the time that I've been working in this field, the mindset and the attitude towards this idea has drastically changed. Um, I think people are excited, people are aware, people are looking forward to trying new things, looking for the new possibilities. And it, it, the logic is just really strong if you think about it. So if I would present you with basically two uh, steaks on, on a plate, just plain. And I would tell you one came from an animal and it has the carbon footprint and it has the animal suffering and it has all the negative impacts that animal rearing has. But the other one is exactly the same thing, exactly as nutritionist, but comes with less impact, less animal, uh, no animal uh, slaughter whatsoever, no antibiotics. And you will, be, you will turn around and I would switch them around. And when you look back and you would taste them, you wouldn't be able to tell me and you wouldn't be able to tell me the difference there is i think absolutely no reason for anybody to just keep eating normal meat or traditional meat on a regular basis it literally is the same benefit that you get from a different product without the negative consequences. And I think people are realizing that more and more each day and are also being more conscious about their food choices. And therefore, what you can see happening uh, beyond meat IPO that was extremely successful and all these new types of foods coming about. I think 10 years ago, when you went to a restaurant and you were looking for a vegetarian or vegan option, you could get a piece of cardboard and probably not with a good sauce on it. But today, you have a variety of delicious products, uh, of large choices in different areas, where I think it's just to the benefit of everybody, where you can diversify your, your, uh, your diet and diversify the, the dishes that you make. Because I, I love to cook myself. And the more ingredients I have to my disposal, the better it is for me to provide real delicious uh, dinners for my family and friends. And I think that is also really the, the foundation of the mind change of what consumers Consumers are now having when it comes to eating protein and eating meat as it all as a whole. Yeah, I um, I can imagine that the uh, the attitudes have changed over time. I am wondering though, how do animal activists see this? Do they consider it an animal? They actually don't know. <laughs> yeah, so we only have to get cells from an animal once and then never again. You can grow nearly infinite amount of meat just from one extraction of cells. So this is, of course, for animal activists, the, the dream that they've been waiting for. Because um, you can reduce the amount of animals necessary to feed your population many fold over. And this is a thing what we should be heading for. Um, I'm not saying that we can get rid of animals in our, in our entire process, uh, for, at least in our food uh, process entirely. I think people still might, there might be a niche for animals, but in our case, we don't need any animals at all. So the, the need for them will diminish. And I think it's just better for the planet and for people, for people uh, in whole. 
to have less animals. I won't say no animals, but less animals. I think that is really the key uh, to curve to curve the, uh, the direction that we're heading. Incredible. Sounds almost too good to be true. Um, I'm also wondering, though, because both of you are also dealing with topics that potentially will face some legal and regulatory battles or challenges. Um, what kind of situation do you guys currently see? Ying? Um, well, before that, I, I, I just want to uh, comment on the on the last question, because as a meat consumer and a, and a meat lover, if I still dare to say, <laughs> I'm definitely open to try like new options. And I think this part of, you know, almost guilt-free uh, eating meats uh, is really attractive. And I also feel like the younger generations are are much more kind of um, open and even actively looking for those options. So like for me, yeah, I would really love to try the meatable meat one day. <laughs> Thank you. That is so kind of you. I really appreciate Dan, that. Dan, me too. Me too. <laughs> Please send us a uh, please send us a, a sample. <laughs> you, you're first on the list, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, great. Um, coming to the question of uh, Roxanne on uh, regulations, um, yes. So um, on our part, well, again, we have those two things, right? We have uh, on the one hand the cannabis plant, um, and uh, we really like work with the low THC plant. So THC is the psychoactive uh, compound in the plant, and artificially we give um, we make the difference between a low THC plant, uh, which is hemp, or a higher THC plant, which which is marijuana in a legal uh, set of uh, language. So uh, we really work with uh, hemp plants um, in that sense. Um, and for building up, up our data platforms, building up our pipelines, we do not um, really need to work with plants um, that contain high THC at this point. Um, so that's how we are kind of, uh, you know, doing our work um, regarding um, the regulatory um, framework around the hemp plants or the cannabis plant. On the, on the other hand is the gene editing technique. Um, in Europe today, Everything is regulated the same uh, for new breeding technologies once you touch the organism and the gene. Um, so how we are um, reacting to that is that on the one hand, we obviously need to develop the technology because that's really the future. Um, on the other hand, if we work with European producers, uh, what we can also offer is that uh, using our um, gene plant gene discovery platform, we could find DNA markers that could assist um, breeders and producers to make the process of obtaining their uh, desirable traits already much faster. Um, it is not as ideal as if you would go through with the entire technology suit, um, including gene editing, but it is already much more efficient compared to, you know, what conventional um, breeding can do. Super. And Dan, what kind of legal and regulatory battles have you guys faced? I, I think you're putting it quite adversarially, and I don't <laughs> think that necessarily is the case, since food is regulated, period. doesn't matter if you're making cheese, if you're making bananas, if you're making anything, it should always be safe, and therefore it should be regulated. And it's exactly the same thing for us. And we are a bit of a new food, like the new kid on the block, so you know, regulators are looking at us, uh, they don't have really as much reference points, but they're very welcoming and very open to talk to us to work with us and to see how they can help us by thinking through what type of regulations we should apply and how this framework should look like for this new type of food so actually we don't see it more as a battle but we see it more as a collaboration because they also see the same problems that i've just spoken about and they really are looking for alternatives and they're not here to suppress innovation but they're here to guide innovation to make sure that the public is safe from anything that comes into their environment and i think that is not that is very that's very okay and uh, i think we should be very happy that we have such a system protecting us from uh, you know from from potential faults or mishaps uh, because you know it's a thing that you put in your body and you should really care of that so uh, we have seen that there are being huge steps being taken. So first of all, of course, the Singaporean government taking a lead in this, but also America, uh, the States, is really actively talking to all these players and figuring out how to get this on the market. And Europe, um, Europe is 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 a have a very sturdy framework. So we just have to go through the motions, which are quite extensive, but still they're already there. And we just have to make sure we do the first time right, like we intend to do anyway. So this is actually not as a, not as as bad as it might seem. Uh, and I think it's just a necessary thing to uh, to make sure that what you're making 
is uh, is healthy and and safe for people to consume. Well, that's also a very healthy attitude with regards to regulation. Um, and I, I agree with you. I think you're absolutely right. We probably don't realize how much regulation actually there already is in place. Um, with regards to what we eat today, it, it's phenomenal. Yeah, I, I've just been scratching the surface. We've hired we've hired our head of regulations in the beginning of this year, and it has been an educational journey for me, and also an appreciative one to see that people from the government are taking our best interest into account. This is, I believe, truly the case. And we have just, so this is maybe a little bit of a scoop, but we have just started the first European Trade Association for Cellular Agriculture uh, with Meetable spearheading the organization to really come together as an industry uh, to discuss uh, what quality standards should look like, to discuss what safety precautions should look like and see if we can even go beyond that to make sure that we show everybody that what we're doing is safe and uh, good to eat. Wow, that's very that's very impressive, and uh, we don't see that from all startups. So I would have to say, go mutable. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, now we're coming to the end, so I want to finish on a a note that's maybe taking a bit of a step back from actually what both of you are doing and taking a bigger look at the ecosystem um, and the space that you're in. Tell me first of all, what are some of the other food in innovations and um, startups that you're seeing that are you find really innovative and, and interesting right now? And what are the opportunities that you feel are still left to be addressed in this space? Ying, I'm going to start with you. Um, that is a very good question. Like close to our topic today, I have seen startups that are trying to combine the plants and um, the meat, I would say, um, to use, for example, plants as biofactories to replace current growth factors. Dan probably know that very well, to help the lab-grown or the cultured uh, meat industry because the costs today of those growth factors are very high. So if you can reduce that cost, the consumers can also benefit then uh, from the final pricing. So that's something for me very innovative and really looking towards the future of the entire alternative or non-traditional uh, protein industry. Um, there, there are also companies using plants as new protein formulas adding to the meat. Um, so you would kind of having a mix uh, of the two, uh, which seems to me are also very interesting. I heard that some of the frozen chicken nuggets are actually now voted the most tasty using those innovative plant protein formulas. So that's something really um, I'm looking forward to try. Wonderful. And what are, what do you feel is the, the remaining opportunity or unaddressed opportunity in, in this space? Um, that is a very good question and also very large. I think in food, everything around the new kind of formulas and the supporting supporting factors of those uh, new industries coming up, I think that there would be very good opportunities. So for example, if now we're looking at non-traditional proteins, and that means we will have to devise new ways to uh, make sure the quality is good. Um, maybe in the consumer's setup, we would need some IoT devices in our fridge, especially uh, telling us you know, how our foods are doing in a newer setup, just imagining things. I think all the supporting sectors could really thrive uh, with the new trends coming up. Wonderful. And done. what are the, the innovations that you are really paying attention to and the remaining opportunities? Yeah, wow. Those are those are many. Um, I, I've been research director of New Harvest, which is a uh, an NGO in the cellular agriculture space. So I've seen many things coming up uh, from now the, the very successful startup, now Scale Up, Perfect Day to Clara Foods. But one thing that I, I'm really excited about is a good friend, Raphael Volgensinger. Uh, from legendary food where he's also doing cultured meat uh not cultured milk i'm sorry cultured milk and he's making great strides on that and really seeing his effort paying off uh, so that's one uh, i'm really looking out to uh, the other one is a good friend of mine as well called leila strickland with bio milk and she's making uh cultured breast milk for uh, uh for children for babies that are born and they cannot get formula then you can have the real breast milk from a mother to, to feed to your children. I think that is just a wonderful, uh, wonderful idea that uh, I would like to cheer on. Um, on the thing that are not being done, it's not so necessarily a food. It's more of a thing that I was so surprised at and so caught off guard with the uh, current uh, COVID infections in mink. In the Netherlands and in Denmark, there has been infections in the mink population where now these old uh, hundreds of thousands of mink are being culted. So I think there is, and I didn't know this was still a thing. I was so surprised. It sounds so medieval to me that we're still doing this. But 
that got me thinking, like, if we can do uh, cultivated meat, why not cultivated fur? And this is a thing that stuck with me. And I think there is there's a, definitely a need there because apparently there is a lot of mink now being cultivated, And apparently a lot of people do this. And I think it's a barbaric, uh, barbaric industry that is ready for disruption. And, and such a methodology would be, uh, would be more than welcome for me. And I would definitely support that. Wow, what a what an innovation for us to end with. I have to agree with you. It definitely does sound medieval. Um, and I think the opportunity that you just presented would be incredible. So if we have any listeners working on that, please reach out to us and let us know. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure having you both with us. Thank you, Don, and thank you, Ying, for being with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us, yes. That was wonderful. Learned a lot. Next up, we have Antoine Hubert, CEO of Insect. Hi, Antoine. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, everyone. So I think I want to start off with a common misconception that I imagine people have about your company. You're actually not developing insects for human consumption. Tell me, what are you developing these insects for? Yes, indeed. This is not our focus today. We decided back in 2011 to focus first on animal feed and uh, plant nutrition. Uh, why? Because we have seen that the demand was much higher there. Uh, insects are well accepted. Insects are natural prey for wild fish, wild birds, wild animals, but also they're not a natural way to uh, fertilize the soil in, uh, in the wild forest, meadows, etc. So it was more obvious in terms of uh, marketing and demand, and the demand is much bigger in animal feed because we need to grow uh, the production of fish uh, or poultry worldwide, maybe not in, in, in France yet, but uh, beyond. And we thought out that it was uh, having more impact eventually to address all the plates of any consumer in the world, whatever the diet uh, are. Uh, they could be vegan, they could be flexitarian, they could be really meat lovers. Every day, any people on earth will eat either animal or either plant or both in its plate. We are changing the way that animals and plants are being fed. So it's a really, very big impact eventually, uh, much bigger than uh, trying today to address human food, where it would be uh, for a long time a, a very small proportion of the human beings on Earth that would be eating insects. Okay, so these are insects for feed, for animals and, and plants, as you have just mentioned. But what is the real problem that you guys are solving? Why does it matter what animals eat? This is a key topic for sustainable agriculture. We need to increase by 70% by 2050 overall agriculture productivity because the, the population is growing and also because the middle class is growing uh, everywhere, especially in Asia, in Africa, in South America. And there, the demand for meat and fish is growing much faster than in Europe or in North America, where it's quite stable. Still, fish consumption is still growing salmon, fruit, and shrimp. And then today, these animals are mainly fed with uh, plant-based protein, like soy and wheat, but also uh, using small fish we catch in the sea. It's called fish meal. And the resources of fish meal are limited because provided by the oceans, and there, there, there is a limit to this natural supply. And then we just need to do more with less, more and better uh, with less. So less uh, environmental pollution, less greenhouse gas emissions, Less available land, this 70% increase needs to be done with only 5% extra available land. So this is why we think insects are a good solution. It's natural prey for animals. It's super efficient in terms of uh, conversion of, of feed materials. We have a negative uh, carbon footprint on our vertical farm, and we are building a vertical farm. So we are using a very small piece of land uh, compared to any other livestock or, or crop uh, uh, production which is then uh, addressing this topic of doing more with less uh, available land on, in the long term. Super. It does sound a lot more sustainable when you explain it like that. Um, I'm just wondering, how does somebody wake up one day and decide to launch a company like this? Tell me, how did you actually arrive at the point where you decided to launch Insect? Uh, I was involved already in uh, the overall topic of food. I'm an uh, engineer in agriculture. And uh, as I was working in a uh, in environment protection uh, in a, a large consulting company. I founded an NGO back in 2007 with a few friends, including uh, Alexis, one of my uh, partners at Insect. 
and uh, around the sustainability of food and how to reconnect urban people with uh, where their food is coming from and where their leftover and waste will go uh, if they don't finish their plate, if they are wasting when they do uh, their cooking, etc. And we were putting uh, emphasizes on uh, the use of warmth to recycle this organic waste uh, from the kitchen and then produce this uh, organic compost to uh, go back to the, to the soil and do uh, uh, urban farming. This use of warmth, I found it in New Zealand uh, in 2005, 2006, where I was working there. And I found it was a great idea to try to, yeah, to reconnect people with agriculture in, in, in cities, with a living organism. And from this, uh, I would say, ecological activism, going in schools uh, to promote this to, to our kids, and to show them how we could do uh, cultivate some tomatoes and other uh, leafy greens with the compost they were generating, with the canteen leftovers. Eventually, this NGO uh, uh, was a kind of think tank and found out the, the topic of insects, which was discussed in Asia, uh, how to farm insects for human food beyond just the, the silkworm, which is like a centuries-old industry for the for silk, uh, how to to farm also insects for human food and animal feed. And we, we picked up this idea in the NGO, spoke about that in the uh, in schools, in conferences, etc. And at some point, Alexi discussing this with a, a friend from school, particular Fabrice and Jean-Gabriel, and did the, the connection and this group eventually decided to uh, to launch a project because everyone, we, we were seeing everywhere that insects could play a, a very big role in the food sustainable system, but uh, nobody was developing a, a real technology to produce significant volume at competitive price with a very stringent food safety for our European standards. Wonderful. So it sounds like you guys went through kind of a lot of different elements of the kind of food agri ecosystem to finally arrive yeah. at insect. Um, and you mentioned also vertical farms. Uh, I think you also mentioned uh, one different type of insect, but I imagine you guys work with many different types of insect. I know the company yeah. has a lot of different patents. Talk to me about some of the tech and the, the research and development that has gone into this. Yeah, I think it seems to or twelve we've done uh, I think science is a, a key part for us. We are scientists and we we found that developing the technology was also starting from understanding the insect biology. And we screened a lot of species like in two fourteen, beetles, flies, crickets, locusts, butterflies, and eventually we picked up this small beetle called the monitor or the mealworm. Uh, because we thought the protein composition was super high as the best uh, ingredient on the market today in animal feed, animal feed being the fish meal. And the, how it was, the biological properties in uh, the, the speed of growth, the density of production, etc., were compatible with scaling the farming productivity by adding robots and automation on top of these traditional farms that were existing for, uh, to produce mealworm for zoo animals, for instance. So we had the background, we hired, uh, uh, we acquired a small insect farm, doing this uh, insect for zoo animals, uh, bringing this uh, down to the ground, the farming and knowledge, and mixed with engineers, scientists, PhDs in insect biology, and then all engineers in a software data scientists. We have developed in a few years this vertical farm concept and technology. Today we have filled about 250 patents in the world which are coming from uh, 30 uh, uh, native families of patents. So we, we have a broad production on our uh, farming technology, how we process insects and the, the products themselves and their applications and all their health benefits and, uh, and uh, performance benefits on uh, fish and plants are also protected through uh, uh, several patents. So this is uh, highlighting the, the efforts we have done in research uh, and development over time. And going from a very small lab in Paris, you know, better called Agoranov, to Genopole, where our labs are still there uh, in Paris suburb, to scale up uh, through different pilot scale to a small plant, which has been running for now uh, more than four years in Burgundy. And we are under construction of our flagship plant now in Amiens, which will be delivered next year. N21, uh, and this plant is the result of all the research and, uh, and development over the past seven, eight years. 
That's incredible. I never would have imagined so much research goes into developing uh, insects. And I think it's fascinating mm -hmm. also that you guys have really been very selective about the type of insects that you are uh, working with. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just wondering, yeah. like, what has been the response from the animal rights communities? How do they see um, growing insects for animal feed? Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, have, having a good idea is, is good, but... Uh, such as in the animal feed sector and, and on the overall food chain are quite conservative because uh, nobody wants to have any a food scandal as happened in the past, like the mad cow crazy. So they are super stringent on food safety, which is the first concern. And having after, so when they basically start to qualify a new ingredient, a new supplier, they will first start to uh, check the, the food safety several times and then they will uh, start to feed uh, for instance, fish, small, small quantities in, in their lab to see the, the digestibility of the product, the inner composition uh, of our proteins, and then they, they will grow and do to a, a bigger scale a test to uh, do it in real farms, experimental farms, but very large scale on thousands of fish uh, during several months. It's like clean, clinical trials uh, uh, for human uh, uh, food applications. And, and see the benefits um, of using our ingredients in uh, a feed they are producing. And what we found out that beyond uh, what they found out and when we found out also with independent research uh, centers and universities in France, Norway, Thailand, uh, Germany, uh, Greece or Portugal, uh, that uh, when we are adding our product, replacing the, the fish meal ingredients, which is today the best ingredient in terms of functional and health benefits, we were uh, bringing even more value to the to the farmers. The fish uh, are growing faster, eating less, and with less mortality, up to 30 to 40 percent change, which has a drastic impact. I mean, in overall uh, farmer revenue, uh, because they will do more fish with less uh, waste of uh, feed, with less uh, uh, dead animals, which are a pure waste of money, eventually also for them. Uh, so it has really a massive impact. So thanks to all this research also we have done on the properties of our product and with our customers, we ended up after a few years to uh, sign contracts. And today we have 105 million contracts signed. We are delivering them from this year to the next two years. We have, we have also delivered the uh, first customers in the past four years in fish feed, in pet food and in uh, organic fertilizer. So the demand is a, uh, no super high. We have more and more customers coming. There is a kind of snowball positive effect now after first early adopters started to uh, purchase our ingredients. We see more and more now companies in Europe coming and willing to add our ingredients in their supply. Perfect. I was actually going to ask you, so what does the commercial side look like? But you actually just kind of uh, followed up on that. Very, very interesting. I'm, I'm now wondering... What kind of evolution have you seen since the beginning of the company? I mean, as, as far as the company is concerned, what have you guys gone through? What kind of changes have you experienced? Um, have you had to adapt to any kind of things you didn't expect in the market? What change? Uh, I, I think at the beginning we were focused on protein. We were also trying to address the, the, the green chemicals market uh, by uh, trying to uh, do something from the insect shell, the exoskeleton. Uh, we ended up with interesting uh, patterns there, how to extract it and how to make, for instance, bio-based plastic. So we 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 uh, we managed to develop this at the lab level, but uh, eventually we found out that uh, in terms of market demand, the price were too low compared to the food and feed uh, food, feed and fertilizer market, and it was requiring much more investment uh, and time and just defocusing also the company by trying to address too many markets at the same time. So we decided, I think it was during the two first years and in 2016, from like 14 to 16, and in, in 16, we decided to focus only on feed and fertilizer, where the demand were really the, the most important globally, not only in Europe. So it was, I think, an example of change. And then uh, in terms of market address, but the, and the technology uh, still the, the, the overall same concept, but with the different scale-ups, we adapted some uh, specific process to be even more efficient, the scale after scale. 
Super, I love it. We've heard the the concept of efficiency quite a different uh, in quite a few different formats. So I think that's really a, a great uh, element that you guys have. Um, now, also, Insect is one of the best funded French startups today. I think your last round, correct me if I'm wrong, was like thirty three three hundred and seventy two million. Yeah, um, which yeah. is huge for France and for anywhere. Um, I'm just wondering, what does this funding change for you? We raised the Series C, uh, which has been uh, many two trenches, uh, early 19 and late 19, early 20, for for two reasons. It was to finance our uh, vertical farm, our flat project in Amiens. So the project started to be constructed early 20, and we will finish uh, next year. So we did this one to to finance the construction and the startup, but also the full operation and this fundraising ensures to be. Uh, fully funded, so we don't need any uh, more funds because the, the farm will generate enough funds over time to uh, cover the, the cost of the farm and the cost of the corporate R&D. And we, this one was also important in terms of uh, uh, connection to investors. And we we want to our market is global. Again, we we want to reach the plate of any consumer eventually. Uh, there is no uh, preferences; could be anywhere. Uh, whatever the again the, the diet of the of the people, whatever their uh, also bargain power, could reach a cheaper fish to very expensive fish, for instance. And for this, we we needed to have a strong partner, shareholders in the world in our main uh, strategic geographies. So we have with this one European investors beyond French, but also Belgium, Swiss, and uh, British investors. But uh, also from Singapore and Hong Kong, and uh, the main uh, add-on was this, in this one was from the U.S. So with two funds, uh, Upfront, who uh, was the only investor in Bird Scooter, for instance, and Kiriba, who did a very big uh, uh, exit uh, a few months ago, for instance, and uh, Footprint Coalition, which is the fund uh, created by the uh, actor Robert Jr. Jr. So I think it's uh, it's great today to have this. Uh, Support of many different investors from VC to private equity, uh, listed uh, companies, corporate, family offices, uh, Hollywood stars. So yeah, and all these uh, people aligned for the future of food. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they have all different experiences, feedback, networks, which could be leveraged for the good of the company. Wonderful. And so I'm wondering now, because we've talked quite a bit about the company, but I want to know a little bit more about your thoughts on the industry, the whole kind of food innovation movement and space, because there's so much happening, but there's still so much left to be done. Um, I'm wondering, what do you feel are still the problems that are not addressed or where the real opportunities are? Indeed, insects is just eventually a small part mm. of, the, of the topic. It's a, a key element for more sustainability, but it's it's also providing other alternative proteins like algae, microalgae, yeast, and all the biotechnological developments we see. There is, a, for instance, the so-called cellular meat from cell uh, animal cell uh, development in bioreactors. Um, but it's not, not only about only farming or developing new proteins. It's also obviously reduced food waste, uh, which is critical uh, when you use at least when you lose at least 30% of food from the farmer to the plate, and there are very good companies in France like Phoenix and Too Good To Go that are uh, helping to reduce this. Um, there are also uh, uh, com- companies at the end of the food chain, and if you are not able to reduce the food waste, at least do something good with the food waste and not burn them uh, in, uh, in incinerators or landfill them uh, by at least composting or doing methane production. And in France, for instance, beyond the big giants like Veolia and Suez, there is a, this company called Moulino, with, uh, which is doing a very great job by developing composting and, and uh, warm composting of the, all the Paris organic waste. So I see a lot of things happening there. And overall, we also need to change consumers' uh, behavior by eating, uh, probably for some people, less calories. Uh, Less over processed food, uh, and I think Yuka uh, app has also helped a lot there. There are consumers to decide and focus on more uh, healthy, less, meaning less processed food, but it's also to eat less maybe red meat and uh, being more flexitarian by eating more high quality meats and not 
uh, uh, cheap meat, which is you not know, the best and uh, sometimes not coming from France. So eating more local, uh, helping local farmers is illegal. Like in fact, we our products eventually they are there to uh, to uh, for uh, almost majority of uh, farmers uh, doing uh, vineyard uh, uh, wheat production, uh, vegetables, but also a fruit uh, fish farmer. Uh, and all the, the owners of pets and cats. Uh, so we, we, we are touching very local markets. So there are so many challenges, uh, there from the very upstream part to the overall downstream to the consumer behavior that needs to be still tackled. And uh, a lot of startups are doing this, big companies, but there is still a lot of, of work to do. Wonderful. I feel that's a very complete overview and we can see that there's a ton of opportunity left to be addressed. Um, you mentioned yeah. a few a few examples of companies and I'm wondering which innovations that you have seen um, are the most exciting for you in the food space? Good question. Uh, the, I mean, the, the, the overall protein sector is moving super fast and the, the vertical farms also, I see a lot of beyond what we do also, a lot of exciting projects. Uh, and, and, and we see a, a lot of interesting developments in, uh, in front in the Actex space, uh, gather under the last term digital banner. Uh, it's a, a lot of very great companies there from very farming to also financing the, the, the shift of new, uh, more, uh, more sustainable, uh, practices, uh, like Ibota platform. So they, I don't, I won't, I can't mention one, but there, there, there are so many. Uh, relevant initiatives in the world, but maybe, maybe the, uh, I really love what he's doing here, Moulino, uh, in terms of compost. So at the end, we have the food, uh, food chain to, uh, to do something with this waste, to do a new fertilizer, to go back to the field with farmers. We have a very strong social also, uh, work, uh, employing people after their, their time in jail in prison. So for, uh, reconnecting the people to, uh, to work. So it has a very, uh, uh, it's a really successful good company, uh, which is quite uh, inspiring. But there, there are a lot of others. Wonderful. I think that's a terrific example that probably not a lot of people would have gone to. So I think it's really great to, to mention that one. Now, I'm going to end with a bit of a tricky question. Um, in 2050, so quite a few years from mm -hmm. now, how will we be eating? In 250, what will we be eating? How will we be yeah. eating? What will... What will our way of eating look like? I think one, one of the most important thing is to take time to cook again and, and shift for less processed food to more fresh, local food. As you eat fresh, it's obviously local, it's healthier for you, it's more sustainable because it's locally uh, done, and if you eat with a very good input uh, like algae or insects, it's even better. Whatever the, the meat you eat or the, the plants you, you eat, this is what the, the, today the Ministry of Agriculture is, is pushing a lot uh, to eat fresh and French. I think it's a very good strategy. And, uh, and with all the TV shows in the past decade, uh, you see uh, in France and Europe who promote uh, cooking with chefs and anyone who become chef. Uh, uh, and with all the Michelin star being now also very big stars on the, on the media, on the social media. Uh, I think this is the, the trend how we could take more time in the kitchen, do every evening in the in the weekend uh, uh, food for you, your family. And there are a lot of startups doing uh, helping there. Uh, I am using uh, uh, one of them, for instance, is the delivery of fresh and bulk products with recipes. So you can do in 20 or 30 minutes your uh, uh, fresh and, uh, and local uh, dinner every day. And so I think it's part of the, the future, uh, eating overall less, uh, less of our consumption, more local, fresh, uh, is part of the, uh, and less waste. I think it's part of the long term of how we will be eating and uh, the, the, the sooner the better. Wonderful. I couldn't agree with you more. Antoine, it has been a pleasure having you with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone, thank you for joining us. If you liked this episode, make sure to give us many, many stars. And if you have any feedback or if you want to suggest a topic or a speaker, uh, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter or by email at press at stationf.co. And finally, make sure to follow us and not miss out on our next podcast episodes. We're available on all your usual podcast platforms, including 
Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and Google Podcasts. All right, see you soon.